I'm Pastor Michael Ansman, and this is the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. I'd like to welcome you and to thank you for listening to our Sunday morning sermons. I hope that they're a blessing to you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what we have for today. We have been walking through the book of Exodus, and we haven't been doing it necessarily verse by verse, but we've sort of been taking it uh, in, in larger sort of chunks and seeing some of the larger themes and lessons that we can, can learn from it. And this week, we heard read the institution of the Passover. And when you start to study on the institution of the Passover, you can get, really get into the weeds quickly on, um, well, <laughs> was this a, a, something that they were already celebrating and they kind of, uh, once they had this encounter with Yahweh and Moses and they kind of adapted it, or was this just something completely new? You can really get out into the weeds with the origins of, of the feast itself, and, and that stuff can be helpful, but it's not really, I guess, necessary in understanding what's going on in the Passover story. So we're going to kind of sidestep uh, well, that's a football move. I don't know what that's called. Uh, where you can put your arm. We're just going to kind of do this uh, because we want to get to kind of the meat of, uh, of the story, I think. And when we look at the story of the Passover, specifically God's instructions for what was coming and for how his people would be preserved for it, from it, we, we, we can learn a lot. And what we have to deal with right away at the beginning is how uncomfortable what happens just after this kind of makes us, kind of makes us. You know, whenever we read the Old Testament, we can be confronted with actions of people and of God that modern peoples might find unfair or maybe even repulsive. And we sometimes feel like this, especially when we read of the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians, both human and animal. And, and this isn't limited to us, too, in our own, our own day and time. And ancient readers of Scripture picked up on this as well. And guess what? The opponents of the Christian faith way back in the day used those same type of texts in a way similar to how atheists of today will use those texts. Right? So you say, You'll, maybe you're online one day, right, and you say, God is love, and then somebody posts back, oh, is God love? What about all the children that died in the, in the, in the Exodus? Or God is love, oh, what about this terrible thing when this guy, where these two guys, all they did was come in and offer incense before the Lord, and God slew them for it. Checkmate, Christians. Oh, no, Mr. Atheist, we've never dealt with these difficult texts of scriptures before. Mere citation of a text of scripture, it's not a slam dunk argument against us, right? Because we cannot sidestep the difficult work of interpretation. The other day, uh, a friend of mine who, um, I know for a very, a very long time, he posted on his, uh, on his Facebook page a meme. And you all know what memes are by now. If you don't, ask your grandchildren if you're old enough to have them. But he posted a meme, right? A funny picture and it was trying to make a political point by appealing to the Bible. And so what I did was I posted one using the exact same one. In response, I made a counter to it, right? Well, you could also see the other person's point. It was political. So I was like, well, here's a different perspective from like the other side, right? You could kind of use the same meme to kind of say the same thing. And so um, 
somebody in the comments saw this and are like, oh yeah, well, what about the firstborn that God killed? What about Jephthah's daughter in the book of Judges? What about Elijah and the ewes, Elisha and the ewes that came out and he called the bears on them and they mauled the, the, the children? Where's your God now? So I said, okay, I'm not going to deal with all of these, but since you brought it up, let's dig into it a little bit. So we did, and I listed a whole bunch of stuff, gave him some stuff to go read, like this will really help you out in your understanding. I never heard back from him, so I don't know if he, he heard it or maybe he heard it and he got annoyed, but yeah. But like all that to say, people who read scripture, we, we are troubled by stories like this. And you know, as human beings, we should kind of be troubled by, by stuff like this. And so many early readers of scripture, right, in trying to deal with what they saw in that text, they began to develop interesting ideas, I guess we could say, especially the early figure of a guy named Marcion, who was like the God of the Old Testament. That's not even the same God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is something else, something completely evil and bad. Uh, and, 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 and nowadays, we kind of see kind of like this similar pseudo-Marcionism, right, where very well-meaning pastors and theologians trying to faithfully interact with the hard passages of scripture will say things like, well, God wasn't really like that because God is love. God didn't really allow those things to happen. Or they'll say, God was like that in the Old Testament. Have you ever heard that? Bloodthirsty and angry all the time. But when we read the New Testament, all that has changed with Jesus. God learned how to calm down and relax. God learned how to be nice. Or God showed us in Jesus that all of that stuff that we see as maybe problematic and bad in the, in, in the Old Testament wasn't really God because we see Jesus through a certain lens and so we know that can't really have been God. We must have just misunderstood these points of view are problematic, of course, but they're trying to wrestle, right, with the concept of this loving God as shown to us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But oftentimes what we wind up doing is we cast Jesus, we take, our, our, we take a modern image or a postmodern image of Jesus, or a Jesus who, who, who affirms everything that might not be good for us, right? Everything secular culture might say this is good and true, and we, Jesus would love and do all of those things, and we create a Jesus in our mind, cast in our own image, instead of the Jesus we see as revealed in Scripture. And, and this isn't something that, it's not just our age that we struggle with, I think this is something that's prevalent throughout all age of believers, right? Because we know that God is love, right? We know that. And we know that if God is love, then that means God has completely accepted us. And that is absolutely true, right? God lays no preconditions to him loving us. He doesn't say meet A, B, and C, and then I'll love you. God loves us and calls us into relationship but that doesn't mean we have divine permission to remain in our sin, right? Because salvation is not 
psychological self-actualization. Salvation is our divination, participating in God's grace. And if we didn't need anything, right, then there's no point to Christ, Christ's loving self-offering of himself on the cross. There's no point to it. Now remember, when we first started this series, and this will help us deal with the difficulties in the passage of Scripture about the death of the Egyptians and the firstborn, what were the Hebrews doing? It says that they were groaning and crying out to God because they were being oppressed and their children were being murdered. Their baby children were being murdered. And God remembered them and God heard them. And it said God sent them a deliverer, Moses. So keep that in mind, right? The state-sanctioned killing of children in which Pharaoh made all of the Egyptians complicit, right? The Passover story ends with groaning. But this time, it's not the Hebrews doing it. It's the Egyptians. And Scripture reminds us, brothers and sisters, that the wages of sin is death. And Pharaoh refuses to let them go in his pride. And, and we understand from this, we cannot persist in willful sin against God and think that one day we'll never have to answer for what we've done. And morally, nations and people involved in state-sanctioned oppression of people groups and the killing of children born and unborn, will have much to answer for on the day of judgment. We will have to answer for what we've done. So another thing to note in this story is how the death of the Egyptian firstborn is tied in with verse 12, and it says this, on, God says this to Moses, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. And the title of the sermon, by the way, is called God Against the Gods. Now, you might think to yourself, how is God judging the gods of Egypt? Have you ever read that part of the story and wondered, that doesn't really make any sense. I don't, I don't get that. And certain scholars have said they've tried to tie in certain Egyptian gods with certain judgments of God. Right? You know, we have the, the, the ten plagues, right? So uh, with the one plague, they'll try to associate a river god. Uh, with another plague, they'll try to associate another god. And it works for a couple of the, 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 the plagues, but it doesn't, work, doesn't quite work for all of them. So we're still wondering, like, what does this mean when God says he's going to judge the gods of Egypt? Right, so we have to remember right off the bat, right, when we read the Old Testament, we sometimes import a modern understanding of monotheism into the text. Right, so a modern understanding of monotheism is there is only one God, which is true, and that no other people, or that the children of Israel, whatever, they didn't believe in the existence of other gods at all because there is only one God. Right? But that's a modern understanding of monotheism. That's not a, a, an ancient understanding of monotheism. Right? So the way that the, that the Hebrew people would have understood that was God, right, Yahweh, their God, is the highest God above all, right? And that God, Yahweh, the true God, the only God, created, right, lesser gods. So I'm putting air quotes 
and I'm doing air quotes, and I'm telling you I'm doing air quotes because some people just listen to the podcast, and so I'm telling them I'm doing air quotes, so I'm not saying that there's other gods equal with the true and only living God, okay? So there are lesser spiritual beings, and we see throughout the story of Genesis how they, they rebel against God. They rebel against God. And St. Paul picks up this theme in the New Testament where he says that the gods of the other nations are demons. So, the Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser, he notes that, that this is a reference when God says, Yahweh, I'm going to judge the gods of Egypt. He says this is a reference to Mat. And Mat, besides being a goddess, is also a principle of cosmic order that the gods of Egypt were supposed to maintain. And so Pharaoh, right, the king of Egypt, was believed to be part of this process of maintaining cosmic order and balance. And so Pharaoh, who is believed to be a god, uh, actually believed to be the god Horus, he was part of this divine process of setting things in order. But Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews, in allowing the destroyer to take the firstborn of the Egyptians is judging them. Because when a pharaoh died, the cosmic balance had to be maintained to prevent chaos. Which is why it mentions in the story later on that pharaoh's firstborn died as well. And that's an important point. Heiser says this, quote, We'll show you who has power over cosmic balance the control of heaven and earth here, the life cycles. We'll show you who has control over order and chaos. He takes away the succession. The firstborn dies. This would be the son who was supposed to inherit the throne. The gods had set this up. They instituted Pharaoh as the incarnation of Horus, the son of Re, to maintain divinely ordered Mat. All of this cosmic order and cosmic balance is not in the control of Pharaoh and his magicians and the gods. The power is located really firmly in the hand of something else, the hand of someone else, and that someone else is the God of the Hebrews. So God, in pronouncing judgment on the firstborn, is judging the most powerful of the gods of Egypt and one of the most sacred beliefs of the Egyptians and how the universe and the order and the cosmic balance is all maintained, the God of this slave people puts himself up and above and over all of the gods of Egypt and says, I'm the one who's running things. I'm the one who's in charge. And your ongoing oppression of my people is not going to be left unchecked. It's not going to be left unjudged. That's a major, major theme as to what's going on with the death of the firstborn. And that helps us, brothers, brothers and sisters, to, to try and reconcile with some of those difficult portions of that Exodus text, which talks about the death of the firstborn. God's judgment against the gods. And we see a couple of interesting things here, too, in the Passover story. You know, God says that... Um, this month for you shall be the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So the Passover becomes for the children of Israel, right? This passing over of the destroyer, right? With the blood painted on the, on the mantles. This becomes a new way of understanding and reckoning time, right? This is different from how other nations and other peoples are going to measure time because for them in their liberation from Egypt, that is now the primary lens through which they gain their identity 
as God's elected people. The commentator White, he notes that human time then is measured in reference to the mystery of redemption. Human time is measured in reference to the mystery of redemption. So this is why for them it's a new year. We're passing outside of normal time into something else. And I think that this is indicative of the tension that we have as New Testament Christians, right? The already not yet of the kingdom of God, how we have all of these wonderful promises that God has given us through Jesus Christ, but we're not quite there yet. We don't have them fully realized. We're waiting for them to come in full. And so it's important to note here that redemption shapes their self-understanding. And it shapes their participation in God's mighty acts of salvation. And brothers and sisters, for us, redemption shapes our self-understanding and our own participation in God's mighty acts of salvation. Because when God says, I am going to do this, he does ask of them something. Obedience. Take this blood, put it on the doorpost. Take this lamb or goat, kill it this way, eat it this way, do it in a hurry. This is all pointing to your redemption. It is coming, it is close, it is at hand. Be ready. Be ready. And that shapes ours as well. In Exodus, the whole story of Exodus is a beautiful type, a beautiful picture of our salvation as followers of Jesus Christ. We could talk about that forever, but I'm not going to. We don't have enough time. Uh, so <laughs> we have, you know, the blood smeared on the lintel and roasting and eating the lamb of the goat and eating it in a hurry, right? There's nothing left, but if there is, then burn the remains. And we see the shedding of blood and eating the lamb or the goat as communal participation, right? It says if you, if you don't have the means help somebody else, you know, invite them in, you all do it together. Communal participation in the smearing of the blood and the eating of the lamb. And we know, brothers and sisters, that the Paschal lamb is Jesus Christ. And, and St. John's Gospel makes this perfectly clear that as Jesus is dying, as the Passover lambs are being prepared to be killed. The blood smeared marks the people as God's own. They will be protected. They will be protected. And, and there's a scholar whose name I can't remember. He argued that, that the Hebrew word Pesach doesn't necessarily mean the word, doesn't mean to pass over. It could be translated as a protected sacrifice. A protected sacrifice. And, and for us, I think that's certainly true. That the blood of the Old Covenant smeared here and smeared in the temple, used for purification, right? This is this sign pointing to the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose blood is truly efficacious for our salvation, whose own flesh and blood we are called to partake of, because unlike the lamb, of, uh, like the, the lamb and the sheep, the goats, right? His body and blood, they actually remove our sin. We are purified by eating, by eating the Paschal lamb, right? And we do it like they do, right? We're, we're, we're doing it in a hurry, right? In a hurry, we're doing it in a sense of anticipation, right? 
we look for the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, we confess. It's something we're anticipating. It's something we're hoping for and waiting for and praying for. That is soon, the New Testament authors, they say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We are anticipating this. We are eating this, which is why it is so important, brothers and sisters. That is why the Eucharist is so central and so important as the focal point of Christian worship that it cannot be minimized and placed aside and thrown to something that we just do once every three months. This is a regular, ongoing participation as we ready ourselves for our own deliverance, the fullness of our salvation. We are being prepared for it, and we are eating together, and we are receiving together, and we are being purified together. And you know, just as God disrupted the cosmic order of the Egyptian gods, you know, God also disrupts our servitude to the gods we serve. And it's not a one-to-one -one comparison, right? Like, most people today aren't worshiping the Egyptian sun god Ray or Horus, right? His son Horus. If you are, come see me later and we'll, I'll pray for you, right? Most people aren't offering sacrifices anymore to Zeus or to Odin or Thor or Freya. Now, I'm Scandinavian, so, you know, I like those stories are a little bit more interesting to me than the, than the Greek gods. But... No one's really doing that anymore. And there's a lot of people right now who call themselves pagans, right? Oh, I worship these, these pagan gods that the Christians, oh, those evil, wicked Christians, those intolerant, wicked Christians forcefully took away from us. No, the Christians didn't forcefully take these gods away from you. They were judged. And I don't know of anybody, and if you are a pagan who actually sacrifices animals, you have good on you. But most of the people who call themselves pagans aren't actually worshiping the way pagans worshiped. They're not sacrificing animals to try and get their God to do something for them. That's not paganism. Like, modern paganism is not, is not paganism. But right, paganism falls away because God judged their gods and found them wanting, right? Just like we read in that story, right, with, with the writing on the wall, <laughs> you have been judged and you've been found wanting. God disrupts the cosmic order of the Egyptian gods, of the Greek gods, of the Norse gods, of the, the Germanic gods. All of the gods get disrupted by the true God, the living God. And in our own lives, we might not worship a pagan god. We might not worship a little statue. We might not worship the earth. We... <laughs> But, but we turn our time and we turn our attention to things that don't really matter. We turn our time and we spend so much time invested in TV shows that don't really matter. People are still arguing about the end of Game of Thrones. Was it good? Yes. Was it good? No. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. People are still arguing about the end of The Sopranos. Was it good? I don't know. Was it good? Well, it was kind of arty, so yeah. And people are still arguing about the ending of Lost. Was it good? No, it wasn't. But like, was it good? No. Was it good? Yes. We're still arguing about stupid things like that that don't matter. Entertaining TV shows, to be sure. Absolutely. I like to watch TV. I watch TV. My wife and I, we nerd out on TV shows and superhero shows and all that stuff. It's fine. But people now have turned their worship to fandom. 
There's a book I want to read about this that recently came out, but we have conventions and, and conferences and people make pilgrimages to San Diego dressed as Spider-Man to hang out with other people who are dressed as Batman. And if you want to dress as Spider-Man or Batman, that's fine. I have no problem with that. I have a, a Darth Vader hoodie that I wear sometimes in, in, in Halloween. It's fine, right? But these pilgrimages to Comic-Con and these pilgrimages to movie festivals have replaced pilgrimages to holy sites. And it's and our devotion to the writers of TV shows has overshadowed our devotion to the writers of sacred scripture or the writers of the church fathers. And God, when we sink too deep into that, God will shake us out of that apathy. He will disrupt those patterns. He will disrupt those rhythms. He will judge those gods and they will be found wanting. And he will bring us out. And he will bring us out. And if all you got from that last tirade was, you shouldn't watch TV, you misunderstood and you need to go back and listen again. Anyway. So hopefully, as you read, as you interact with the story of the Passover and what's going on here, hopefully we can get a, a more holistic view of what God is doing and how that's an active picture for our salvation, and, and how it all points to and shows us our Lord Jesus Christ, the Paschal Lamb, slain, as the New Testament tells us, St. Peter, who was slain from before the foundation of the world. May he be glorified together with the Father and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. This is Pastor Mike Lansman, and if you have any questions about anything you heard or would like some more information about our church, feel free to email me, malansman at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Zion's Stone UCC, or our website, zionstoneucc.com. We have a GoFundMe set up as well for some repairs that we need, gofundme.com slash UCC. As we continue to navigate the fallout from the coronavirus, I'd like to thank everyone for their continued generosity. It always amazes me how generous you've been. And I pray that the blessings of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be with you and would keep you.